but as we settle in, go ahead. You can open your Bible to James chapter 4. Today, uh, we're going to be finishing the chapter uh, by looking again at what, uh, if you have uh, the New American Standard version of the Bible, it entitles this section in James 4 as warnings against worldliness, which I think is just a phenomenal way to describe what James is walking through. And also, man, it's just a really easy box to check as you go to read it to say, okay, don't want to do these things. So uh, we're going to be digging in and, and, and pressing into more of these these warnings or these commands that James is going to be giving. Uh, and then at the end, uh, James is going to finish out this chapter by talking uh, a bit about how we see uh, the various moments in our lives, how we manage our time, how we think about our time, uh, man, and really who is the Lord over our lives and our time. As you turn there, I want to remind us, uh, of the direction that James has taken over the last few weeks, uh, really for the entirety of this letter. Again, this was a letter written to uh, the dispersion, uh, the, the dispora, the, a group of, uh, of uh, likely uh, Jewish Christians uh, that have been dispersed throughout the known world because of persecution. Uh, and so he's written this letter. But what James is doing uh, is he's not simply just kind of drawing out uh, just various bits of wisdom and little tidbits for you to say, hey, I want you to remember this piece of wisdom and this piece of wisdom. While they're all good in and of themselves, while they all make good coffee cup verses, while, uh, man, even as we've walked through James, maybe, uh, maybe you're one of those signed people on Etsy and you've got just scripture all over your house. Uh, maybe you have some of these verses, but uh, while they are good in and of themselves, we have to realize that what James is trying to do is he's building out this uh, what we would we would call practical theology of faith. And this practical theology of faith, it's not simply just uh, man ethereal faith. It is a faith that that works itself out in action or obedience. Remember, faith, uh, true faith, as we've uh, talked about and seen, is not simply a word stated or, or just some badge that you wear. Rather, it is a life lived in word and deed that, that proclaims where one places their hope, their values, their identity. And ultimately, when we talk about faith, ultimately it's where you place your worship. You see, faith, true faith, uh, when we look at it, is always an act of worship. And it's either the worship of self or the worship of God, because at the end of the day, you're either going to put your faith in one of two things. You're either going to put your faith in yourself. Now, that may look a variety of ways. And as you put your faith in yourself, you may begin to trust and look at other things outside of you that you might then worship, right? Like various idols. But the root of all those idols is the idol of self or You're going to put your faith and your worship on God. And so James is building out that this faith that produces action is not just uh, he's not in talking about he's not just saying, hey, these are actions of just goodwill and good things that you do so that others might see and give you encouragement. As we've seen the time, you probably noticed like he's not talking about like a bunch of things that we're just like, man, I'm really good at those action things of doing good things towards others, which is something we should do. You see, we're really good at those things, though, I believe, especially in the context and the culture that we live in. Uh, Man, we're by and large pretty good at doing good things. So much so. 
That, man, if we're not careful, we will wrap our identity in those good things and we will do it for the wrong motivations, will we not? Like, have you ever done anything for someone to be noticed, congratulated, or get that pat on the back fix that you need? You know? You're like, oh, okay, what? You know, or maybe someone says it once, like you do something and they say good job, and then you keep doing that thing, same thing, so they'll keep saying good job, and then the day that they don't, like you're crushed or really angry, and you're like, never doing it again. Never washing the dishes again, right? Like, I'm never, like, I tried to do it, but you didn't tell me good job this time. And I needed that fix for today because it's been a really hard day, so I'm never doing it again. You see, James isn't after this type of heart motivation. Rather, what he's doing is he's directing our needs for action by beginning with our hearts. He's saying, look, man, you can do all kinds of outward things, but let's get into the motivations of your heart that are going to produce the real action or going to reveal where, man, the worship or the identity or the faith for your action resides. Ultimately, what he's doing over and over again to us is he's focusing on our worship. And so these are just a few of the things he's talked about. He said, hey, you need a bridle of your tongue. Don't show partiality to the rich over the poor. Show your faith by what you do. Then he comes back and he says, tame the tongue. Seek wisdom that's from above rather than your own wisdom, because your wisdom leads, as we saw last week, to what? To fights and quarrels due to your selfishness. But one more time, did I mention, he talks a lot about bridling and taming the tongue. Amen. You don't have because you don't ask. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry, I'm losing it. Oh, amen. Uh, Where was I? (laughs) Oh, all right. So he talks about bridling the tongue in our phones. And uh, (laughs) uh, he talks about fights and quarrels due to our selfishness. And then one more time, again, he talks about what? He talks about bridling and taming the tongue. And this book, over and over and over again, talks a lot about watching what you say. He says, man, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And man, I think we can hear all these things. We can read James. We can work through this book. And a lot of times we can think about what James is talking about when you say, well, this is, I just need to be a moral person. I need to follow moralism and just be good. But what we've talked about since we planted this church is, guess what? You can't be good enough, right? Which is why we need... The good news of the gospel is why we need Jesus, because you can't be good enough. And it's by God's grace that you realize you can't. Which leads to what we closed out with last week in James four, verse six, which says, but he what he gives more grace. Even though we looked at that last week, I think we need to hear this today. He gives more grace. God gives more grace. Maybe today you you walk in here and maybe that's what you need to hear today, that God gives more grace. 
He gives more grace now. He'll give more grace in an hour. He's going to give more grace at the end of the day when your kids are all hyped up on sugar tonight. Like he's going to give more grace tomorrow when their stomachs hurt because of all the sugar and maybe yours too. Uh, He gives more grace. But to whom does he give more grace? Well, we've seen that it's not the proud because the proud believe that they either have this or they need to prove this. No, he gives more grace to the humbly dependent. You see, this is the grace that then empowers us to resist the devil. And in our resisting, which is a constant, a vigilant resisting, it says the devil flees from us. Now, does he flee forever? No, he's going to come back with uh, the same schemes, right? But we continue to resist. We draw near to God in worship. You see... In our drawing near to God, uh, well, the reason we draw near to God and, and, and is because, man, we want to know what He's about. I heard a sermon this week or this last week, and the, the guy said, he said, man, if you want to know a fake, the way you spot a fake is by what? Is by knowing the real thing so well. When you draw near to God, you learn what the real thing is. We need to draw near, and it says that He will draw near to us. No, it's fine. It's awesome, actually. Uh, uh, it keeps me humble. Uh, this leads us as we close our time last week to this this call to inward repentance and outward repentance. It's inward repentance because it's a repentance of the heart. We need to come before God and lay our heart and say, God, what do you want to do? What is going on in my heart? But also it's an outward act of repentance towards others. You see, we are called to repent before God. And then, guess what? You're called to repent to your brother or sister, your fellow image bearer, which is what we're going to dive into in just a second, when we've wronged them. You see, when we have both inward and outward repentance, we display the gospel, we display God's grace, and we display the the power of transformation. You see, guess what? Like, you don't have to fear, and, and you can not fear repenting, Even when you fail. Because guess what? He gives more grace. So this leads us into our time today. I know that was a long introduction, but we're going to get a call again to watch our speech. And then watch how we see our time. So I'm going to read the first two verses, uh, these first two verses, which is 11 and 12 in James chapter 4. It says this, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Okay, so to keep in line with this theme of active faith, James turns us back once again to reflect on the words we say and how we say them. And he's done this four or five times. Like, I think a question we have to wrestle with as we go through James is, do we give this much thought daily to our words? The things that we're saying? Do we give this kind of time thinking about how we're going to talk about stuff? I think we it's something to think on and something to wrestle with is, man, you first and foremost to say, man, how do I talk to people? 
How do I respond to people? How do I? But then as an extra step, like if you want to go further, go to those closest to you and say, hey, how do you receive not because of their identity or brokenness? Like don't cast your broken speech back on them and say, well, it's just you. Maybe some of it. But again, we're talking about you going to them. and Hey, how do you receive the way I talk to you? How does it come across? And then hopefully they're honest. And so James lays this out. And again, he's building uh, all of this is building upon itself. And really where this is building from is the question that we started with last week. When James says what causes quarrels and fights among you and the answer that we got is what it's selfishness and pride. You get in the way of you, right? Not others, right? Like maybe others, like others hurt you, others do things. But guess what? At the end of the day, like when you stand before God, who is the judge of all, like you're not going to be able to say, well, they did all that stuff to me. So I responded in this way that was poor. No, you do. You get in the way of you. And you, as we tell our kids all the time, as I have to tell myself all the time, is how am I going to respond? How did Jesus respond to me? And then let me model that. And so what James is doing here in 11 and 12 is drawing us back to the beginning of the chapter. But you see, again, if you read that separate from the whole, it seems like a weird jump from where we ended last week. Verse 10 talks about humility and exaltation. And then you read these two verses and you can feel a bit lost if you're just trying to take it in small sections. Like you ever get in a conversation that takes a long way to get anywhere. And at the end of the conversation, things feel less clarified than they were going into the conversation. Like you feel more confused. You're like, I don't even know what happened. Like, let's just back. I'm going to step out of the room and step back in. Let's just try that again because I have no idea what's going on. Right. Like, it's like, you know, talking to my children sometimes, like I'll confront them with, and then they'll talk back to me and they get done after like five minutes. And I'm like, huh? No idea what you're talking about. And most of it was left field stuff that I didn't even use the same language. Right. Like we see it a lot of time, like on TV, like politicians are one of those things like they'll you ask a question to them and they respond. And after they get done, like five minutes, you're like, huh? I don't like I don't know what you're talking about. Personally, some of you know this story is when I uh, sat down with my uh, would-be father-in-law uh, and asked him for my wife Haley's hand in marriage, I was super nervous. And so I probably kind of went the roundabout way. I was like, and I finally just said, hey, well, what I'm trying to get at is I want to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage. And, and he thought for a moment, which made me even more nervous. And then he went into this 30-minute life coaching lesson, which would not be the last, okay? Uh, one of many. Uh, and he gets done, and I didn't know what to do. So all I responded with is, so you're saying yes? And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but like it went, like it was just like over here, we're talking. I mean, and it was all good stuff. But it was like I asked a question and the answer I got, I was just like, I don't I'm not any more clear than when we started. Right. Whereas my next conversation with Haley's mom, Tammy, went like this. I said, hey, I asked Troy if I could have your daughter's hand in marriage. I want to ask you, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? And she replied, yes, you may. But there are no give backs. Either you die or she kills you. 
And I said, that's clear like that. I know like, yes, I die or I'm murdered. I'm okay with that. Let's move forward. Right? Like it was clear. I didn't need any more explanation. And I think as we hear this, like these two verses can cause the same issue if you don't read it with clarity of context. But when you read it in light of our need to remember not only how we combat quarreling, which is to resist the devil, or submit to God, resist the devil, right? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You also have to remember why we quarrel in the first place. And when you do that, you're given insight on why we're not to speak evil of others. And so quickly, let's press in and look at why our words towards one another are not to be evil. Well, first and foremost, the reason that our words towards other people are not to be evil is because there's value in the Imago Dei. You see, in all of creation, human beings are set apart by God in that we are made in the very image of God. Therefore, all who are made in God's image are to be cared for and spoken to with the dignity, the same dignity and care because we're all image bearers. We all carry that value, right? And so what this means is that when your words, when spoken with evil intent, are, are, are tearing at a person who bears the image of God. Not only that, uh, not, not, not that they are God, but that they bear the image and therefore they should be spoken to with the same care, concern and dignity that you yourself wish to be spoken to. Now, now this is a general thing. Yes, but actually what James is doing is he's honing in. He's getting even more specific because he's talking about the church. He's saying, church, you shouldn't speak evil of one another. We should not only model to the world around us grace-filled speech within the church, we should give greater concern for how we speak to one another as believers. You see, because there is a different, and I believe Scripture confirms this, there's a different level of care and concern. There is a general made in God's image, and then there is a specific in terms of the church. And the, the example I would give of that is marriage. You see, the care that I am to have for Haley, my wife, is, is to be different in terms of its intensity, focus, and concern. And, and it's different in intensity, focus, and concern more so than anyone else I'm around. Oftentimes we get that backwards. We can begin to care for other people in intensity, focus, and concern. We can begin to care for our work. We can begin to care for our sin, our selfishness, our own selves, more so than we do towards others. You see, that's my job as a husband. But you see, if you were a part of the church, again, not the building, the local church, the body of Christ. Our job is to care in specifically deep ways for the church. And sadly, because I've seen it and I continue to see it, and it's even a struggle for me until I, it, it is we've lost some of that, have we not? Like, are we speaking about one another 
in ways that Scripture would call us to? Or do we have evil speech towards one another? Let let me ask it this way. Over the last few years, in light of all the turmoil going on in our world, have you allowed it to grow your care and concern by which you speak about others made in the image of God, specifically other followers of Jesus? Or have you allowed it to draw you into evil speech towards others? You see, James's command here is to not speak evil of one another in any way, shape, or form. But I'll take it further because I believe he does. Even, and I want us to hear this, even if it's true. You see, the way we often get around our criticism, gossip, slander, and evil speech towards others inside and outside of the church is, I'm just speaking truth, right? Well, it's true, so they need to know. Somebody's got to tell them. No, you're just walking in sin, according to James. And to argue this point, what James does is he gives two issues of exaltation that reveal the sin of our speech in that way. The first is in terms of exalting oneself. He says, if you do this, if you judge in this way, you exalt yourself over the law by speaking against other believers and the very law of God. Now, to make this clear, I want us to know what he's not saying by judgment so that we can get to what he is saying. James is not saying that the follower of Jesus is to never make judgments about others or to tell them what is out of line when it's out of line, right? Like we are to speak truth in love. Let me say it again. We are to speak truth in love. Not your definition of love. The Bible's definition of love. And and maybe it's the same, but you need to make sure it matches. And if not, we just need to keep our mouths shut. Also, what he's not saying is, is this. It is false to say, only God can judge me. Like, that's not in the Bible. Now, I believe that Christians and non-Christians alike will use that to uh, validate what they're doing. Only God can judge me. And it's true, He is the ultimate judge, but Scripture calls us to judge sin for what it is and to stand against it in love. We're not to be soft on sin. We are to love people enough to confront them in their sin. Next, it is a cop-out to say, and I've heard this, that you don't go to church because Christians are judgmental hypocrites. I've heard that by people that aren't believers and say that's why I never would be a Christian is because they're judgmental hypocrites. And I've heard it from people who claim to be followers of Jesus that the reason I don't go to church is I love God, but I hate the church. You can't. It's not possible. It's His bride. Because guess what? 1,000% yes, we're hypocrites. You have to be a hypocrite to be a follower of Jesus. Because it's you realizing I'm trying to be one way, but I'm masking my life and I can't fix myself. So I am putting on an act. And I need God's grace to change and transform me. But you see, if you're reasoning 
for not going to church or being a part of the church is because you believe them to be judgmental hypocrites. The thing that you are saying makes you, uh, you are the same as what you claim to be against. Like if that's your case, then you are the same. You are a judgmental hypocrite. And so that's what he's not saying, but what he's pressing here is for us to make sure that we're taking care of our own business before getting into the concerns of others' business. What we tell our children often, we should listen to as well. You worry about you. Jesus says it better than that. He says, hey, before you go get the speck out of your brother's eye, what do you need to do? He said, you can get the log out of your own. But you're so blind. You think you've got, you've got a log in your eye and you're worried about the speck in your brother's. You see, James is not against judgment, nor should we be. He is against and he is commanding sinners from exercising judgment if they're refusing to deal with the sin in their own lives. He's saying before you point the finger, make sure that you've dealt with you. For the recognition and awareness of sin in one's life, which again goes back to the beginning of James 4, which is selfishness and pride, leads us by grace to humility, the resisting of the devil, turning to God in dependent faith. It is a cross-focused life and it leads to humble responses of grace towards others. If you're constantly judging others with the weight of the law, you become blind and forget that you have been redeemed, not by your own doing, but because Jesus took the judgment of God upon himself on your behalf. You see, this alone should draw us away from judgmentalism and towards grace, mercy, and the proclamation of better news. Guess what? It begins with repentance. So the first issue of wrong judgment points then to the second, which is exalting oneself above God. James says, hey, you're not only exalting yourself above the law, you're actually trying to exalt yourself above God. In your speech and judgment. For God is the only one with the right to judge because he is the only one who can save and destroy. Therefore, when we place ourselves in prideful positions of judgment, we are acting as if we are God. Today, do you think your evil speech, your gossip, your slander, your judgment, your criticism is merely words or, or is it the sin of placing yourself in the place only God has the authority to reside in? Man, I think if we thought of this type of speech this way, which is really just saying, hey, God, I belong where you belong. And I think we would talk less. Would we not? Like how much less would you talk in a given day if you cut out all the evil speech James is describing here? And I think this should be convicting for us today. And my hope is that we would talk less for a while until we learn how to talk in better ways. Myself included. To do this, I would encourage you to start with those closest to you. And then move to the church. Like, and if it begins with repentance, like, I just want you, like, just do that. Like, just look around. Like, legitimately, just look around for a moment. It's not weird. I'm not going to make you do anything else. Just look around. It's okay. I have to stare at y'all, right? Like, like, look around. 
As you looked around, I want you to just think for a moment. There are people in this room that I just, I slander all the time, I judge, I criticize. Probably. Yeah. May we speak well and pray for those, even those that we seem to dislike, disregard, and don't agree with. That's what James is calling us to here. And so we get all this, which honestly is enough for today. But uh, for the sake of the series, we're going to close out the chapter with a few notes on how we view our time. Because again, it all relates to selfishness and pride. So I'm going to read verses 13 through 17. It says this. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. All right, so what James argues here, which is really, uh, it's kind of funny, is that what he's kind of getting at, he's saying, hey, look, if you can't even stop your selfish quarreling by your own power, why in the world would you think you could ever be in charge of your schedule and the seasons of your life? Like you can't even stop fighting like little children. Why do you think you can do that? So how many of you, like, again, stretch you a little bit? No shame in this. We're going to do both sides, okay? So there should be, we should have, you should raise your hand one side or the other, okay? How many of you, you're a planner in the room? Like a degree of planning, like you could have every hour done. Or you could just be like, hey, no, I just like to have a plan. How many of you just fly by to see your pants? (laughs) A lot of people like me in the room today. I would say, man, both of those things, there's probably good things about it. There's probably unhealthy things about it, right? Like you can plan, but plan too much and trust in those plans, you know? We, we you know, we see that a lot in, in our house with, you know, one of our children. Man, if they make a plan and you try to change that plan, we're trying to figure out what to do because we're like, you're like, you can't change it. You know, it's like, how how dare? It's going to crumble everything, Right? But on the other side, like you just fly by the seat of your pants all the time, like you're probably just lazy uh, in moments and you just there's a time just to be like, it's all good, you know, like, let's just let's just see what happens. And then there's other times you're like, well, I probably should have planned for it a little more. In both, there can be a lack of trust in God's timing and his providence. But I would say that. We all, to a certain extent, whether you're on one side of that or another, believe yourself to be the authors of your own lives and the keepers of your own schedules. Do you not? You see, James here calls that type of trust in self. Really, it could be described as an arrogant independence. And it reveals the lack of dependence and faith that we have that God's plans for us are good no matter how they unfold and what they look like. You see, for many, I believe, and maybe even you in this room today, I think all of us to a degree, like we live much of our lives dependent on self and our own schedules and our own wants and desires. 
We attend church. We marry. We choose our job, our home. We choose how we spend our time, how we spend our money, and how we spend our energy on what makes us happy, secure, and comfortable rather than going to God in prayer and saying, God, what do you have for our lives? You see, we seek to live our lives according to our will rather than the will of God. And then we label our lives when they're going well as it being God's will. Do we not? If things are going really good, you're like, it must be God's will. If things are going really bad, what do you do? It must not be God's will. And then what do we do? I got to escape it. Paul doesn't say that. He says, man, if I'm in prison or I'm free. Jesus doesn't say that. He said, God, if there's another way, let it be that way. Not my will, your will. And yet we claim when things are good, that must be God's will. When things are bad, oh, it must not be God's will. Uh, One guy, R. Kent Hughes, wrote, he said that Augustine once said, he said, Augustine said, we are to love God and do as you please, which doesn't mean like do whatever you want. It means as you love God, you you say, God, what's your will? I want to live that way because that's the most pleasing thing. He said, sadly, in church culture, we've turned that into living lives that do as we please and just say we love God. You see, because we tend to want comfort and our selfish desires so badly, we seek to work around God's will rather than humbly submitting to God's will. You see, a life lived in this manner is nothing but practical atheism. And I believe that, man, many proclaiming Christians, if really pressed, would only be exposed as practical atheists. Another way to describe this is nominalism. It is living as a believer by name only. It's living as Christian by name only while living the entirety of life for you and your desires. It is practical living with the values and the buzzwords of moral Christianity without a real Jesus. It's dead. There's no life in it. This is what James is arguing against. And the way he argues it is by asking those to whom he's writing and us today to consider... uh, uh, our lives before boasting about what we're going to do tomorrow. Because you don't know what tomorrow holds. James's response, he says, what is your life? He's like, you think that, like, I don't want you to hear this wrongly. You matter. But God's glory matters much more. And we want to be a part of that. He says, what is your life? And then he expounds, he says, man, you're here today and you're gone tomorrow. He says, you're like a vapor. You walked out this morning outside and you breathe and you saw, man, the air, you you see the mist and then boom, it's gone. He said, that's your life. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You can do nothing to add to your days. So why do we think we can control our days, weeks and years? Should we plan? Yes. Should we count the cost? Yes. But we should always have an open hand and say, God, not my will, your will be done. God, what do you want to do with this? How do you want me to use my home? How do you want me to use my bank account? How do you want me to use my free time? How do you want me to pour into my children, right? How do you want me to pour into my marriage? How do you want me to pour into my relationship with you? 
You see, we are to live lives that daily proclaim the glory of God's grace and trust that if he wills, we will do this or that, James says. If he wills. So that that phrase, if he wills, is found nowhere in the Old Testament, but it's all over the New Testament. It shows a humble dependence upon God that trusts that what he wills day by day is good and will work out for his glory and our good. And you've probably heard that, like, oh, God wills, and it sounds like kind of like really cliche, and I think at times people use it that way. They don't really mean it, they just say it. They were if if things went badly, they're like, I don't will like I don't want what God wills. But I believe that this type of trust in God's sovereign providence allows for the follower of Jesus to trade rushing around for actually being present. To trade distraction for awe and worship. You see, dependence leads to joy while living for self as a hard yoke that wears us out and can't ultimately be trusted. Guess what? You can't trust your tomorrow. But you can trust God's tomorrow. You can't trust your tomorrow, but you can trust God's. And so today, is your life marked by deep trust in God's care for you and your days? Or is it filled with the weariness of making your own way and fulfilling your desires that can never be met in and of yourself? Are you living out God's will by clinging to the truth of His Word, the calling of mission that He gives you no matter what tomorrow brings? And the proclamation of His glory by your willful submission and trust no matter the circumstance? Or, man, today are you so weary and heavy laden with making your plans and desires happen that you live in fearful angst of today while boasting about your self-sufficiency for tomorrow? And one leads to rest, the other leads to destruction. One is an end of self. One is saying, man, I'm going to depend on God. My worship is there. My hope is there. And so today, man, as we hear these things, like how are we to respond? I'm going to have Brett and Cody come back up, but I really want us to just think, just kind of in two areas today. First, what does your speech and your view of others say about your view of God and how He views you? In that today, are you exalting yourself in your speech? Are you exalting God? And how might you need to submit to God, resist the devil, draw near as he draws near to you? Amen. Today, I think that begins with an awareness. It begins with repentance. It begins with asking hard questions. Maybe it begins by you just committing to say, man, I'm just going to talk less for a while. Not that you ignore people, okay? Say, I can't talk to you, honey. I gotta talk less. Can't talk to the children anymore. I gotta talk less. No, it's talking in a way that's meaningful, that's filled with grace, that's slow to speak. You don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And then secondly, how do you need to repent of seeking to make your days about your will rather than the will of God? Man, just begin like a layer at a time pulling that back. Just starting with, man, how do I view my day? Is my day about me or do I make time for God? 
Is my, is my day about God, I want to do your will from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed. Pull another layer off, right? Like the way I work. Pull another layer off. The way, I, man, I care for my relationships, you know? Again, submit, resist, cling to grace. Because guess what? There's more grace. He gives more grace. May we trust that. May we find hope in that. May it lead to our speech changing. May it lead to us saying, God, and I trust you no matter what. I give you my days. My lying down and my rising up are yours. So I want to invite you to and respond. We're going to sing and worship. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come and share in communion. And again, as we've talked about, this is the ultimate act of saying, not my will, but your will be done, of Jesus giving His life, taking our judgment upon Himself so that we might have life, so that we might walk in freedom. You can do that and we'll sing. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank You that You are the rightful judge, that You were the perfect one, not only that, but God, that you, um, that your speech towards us is good. May we then, in turn, speak in a manner that glorifies your name. And may we be quick to repent for the way we talk about people behind their back and in front of their faces. Stop proclaiming sin as truth. It's The truth is not marked by love. Let us talk less and listen to Your Spirit more. Let us trust You with our hours and our days and our weeks and our years. Submit our lives to You because You are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And God, may our faith lead to an action that it is an act of worship, not an act of performance. Because that will never go deep enough. It will never be good enough. God, that we can walk in faith and life of Your finished work. That we would stop trusting in our tomorrow because it's not to be trusted, but we trust that You've got today, tomorrow, the next day. Empower us by Your grace to be quick and consistent in repentance when we fail to not fear repentance to dive into it knowing because you're transforming us through it that there is more grace we ask these things in Jesus name Amen